You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm John Fort with Carl Quintanilla and Deirdre Bosa. Today on Tech Check, a dramatic tumble for Intel. That stock getting absolutely pummeled in today's trade, with some on the street calling it the worst earnings in the company's history. Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger joins us in just a moment on those dismal results and his outlook on where the company goes from here, plus why Tesla options are Wall Street's hottest new trade. That stock is up more than 20% just this week. Big hour of tech check ahead, D. It is indeed, and we got to start with Intel because take a look at the stock. You've been likely seeing it on our screens all morning. It is the top laggard on the NASDAQ. It was down as much as 10%, now down about 7.5%. Let's dig into the numbers here. Top and bottom line missed. It was that guidance that really hit the stock weaker than expected, really across the board. A very different story from what CEO Pat Gelsinger told us in July. Take a listen. We also see ourselves as a share gainer, even as we go through some turbulence in the marketplace. So overall, we're very confident. And as we said on the call yesterday, this is the bottom. We're rebuilding from here. Well, clearly with the shares down, as I said, 7.5% today, not the bottom. But could it be finally? The street's reaction today has been just brutal. Bernstein calling this quarter Intel's worst earnings in their time covering the company. Cowan left speechless, saying, quote, that was indeed something. And then there's Rosenblatt. No words can portray or explain the historic collapse of Intel Um, Guys, it goes from bad to worse. Take a look at some of the other chip makers, though. This is a very Intel-specific event. At least that's how the market is taking it. You've got NVIDIA up a little bit, AMD. Last time we looked, wasn't down too much. Um, What's changed, though, from last time we heard from Gelsinger? We're going to find out in a moment, John. But that optimism, that's what I hear a lot of complaints about from investors, people on the street, is that he's just been too optimistic. And you certainly didn't hear that on last night's call. I'll tell you what's changed. Demand. That is the major thing that has changed. Remember, Intel was among the first to say, we've got an inventory situation that needs to correct. A lot of others have said that since then, including AMD. But Intel's in the situation where not only is it trying to execute on a turnaround and and do that in a couple of different ways, including spending massively on CapEx, but now revenue is slowing down because of the combination of demand softness and customers chewing through inventory and therefore doing even more uh, uh, preservation of their cash, not buying because they've already got stuff that they uh, can afford to get out there, Carl. So that combination of the slowdown, the inventory, which is driven by the macro, and the turnaround spending is what explains a lot of what Intel's dealing with. Yeah, along with the competition, John, others would throw them in there as well. And and the moves they've made, uh, the gross margin guide, of course, is 10 points below AMDs for Q1. I -hmm. see B of A today says, uh, John, Intel has sort of the interesting uh, uh, combination of being both unprofitable tech and value. And they do believe the dividend will be at risk, something we're going to talk about in a few minutes. Well, let's see what we can find out. Intel's Q4 results. Let's talk about it. CEO Pat Gelsinger joins us now in a first on CNBC interview uh, Pat, welcome. Good to see you. Uh, it's the worst quarter we've seen out of Intel in a while, possibly ever. Revenue at the bottom end of guidance. March quarter revenue projected down 37 percent. Gross margin projected at 39 percent. No guide beyond Q1. How much of this do you attribute to the macro? How much of it is your own execution? 
Hey, John, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Obviously, appreciate the opportunity to be on the show when the numbers are good. But hey, we'll be here and you know talking about the environment when the numbers aren't good as well. So uh, thank you, John, Carl, uh, Deidre, for having me today. You know, clearly uh, the uh, Q4, you know, we eked out at the low end of uh, guide, uh, but the Q1 numbers were uh, well below our expectations. The big factor in Q1 is the market shift. And what we've seen is, uh, you know, customers carried a fair amount of inventory in Q3 and Q4 for the back to school and the holiday refresh. Obviously, as they come into the new year and the macro situation for their business, major inventory adjustments. We're selling into our customers well below their sellout rates in their businesses. So it will be the biggest single quarter of inventory correction that we see in the marketplace, literally in our history that we can look back as we see records. So major inventory adjustments as they look into a much weaker market than was forecast. And we see that globally, but also particularly with China and the issues that uh, they've been working through right. with uh, their uh, market and COVID there. So overall, we've uh, given a very transparent look and also working with our customers to bring their inventories down in the first uh, quarter of the year. And with that, we do expect that there'll be some strengthening as we go possibly into the second half of the year. But uh, as you said, we uh, you know, view the uh, Q1 guide being transparent and uh, one that we're working with our customers. Now, clearly we had you know, good position for some of our new products, Sapphire Rapids. You know, obviously the client ramp of our Alder Lake and Raptor Lake products has been strong. So we do feel the products are in a position and we did gain share in the PC marketplace last year. Right. So good news inside of that, but still a very tough outlook. So you saw this, you saw an inventory situation coming, but not the severity of this demand slowdown. I think six months ago, I asked you about exactly this Q4 scenario mm -hmm. Uh, of an extreme weakening in demand. So now, are you prepared for demand not to rebound all year, even weaken further, either in PCs or in data center? Because in data center, you know, even with the hyperscalers, you are starting to see some weakening, right? Yeah, and generally, we, we see that weakening through the first half of the year. We see some modest recovery uh, in the second half of the year. You know, we've clearly adjusted our cost basis and making those adjustments. However, you know, we run factories. And, you know, if the factory's full, it costs X. If the factory's empty, it costs most of X. So, you know, in a fixed cost business, that becomes acutely painful on the margins, as you've seen. You know, that said, you know, we do have strengthening of the product lines. We do expect some some improvement in the market uh, conditions. And obviously, as we ramp our new products into the new factories, that will improve the situation in the second half right. of the year with more uh, you know, competitive products as well. But overall, you know, we still see the outlook of being pretty, uh, pretty challenging in the first half of the year. So, Pat, that leads me to, given that uh, nobody knows what the second half is going to look like, what operational and financial levers are you prepared to pull? It, it seems you can further delay capital projects, perhaps. You can cut the dividend to preserve cash, though I know you don't want to do that. You can lay off workers, but layoffs don't actually save you much cash in the near term. Um, are you prepared to do any or all of those things or something else I'm missing? Well, this is why we announced our cost uh, and austerity programs uh, in the last quarter earning. And we said $3 billion this year. Dave and I, my CFO, we are you know, committed to meeting or exceeding uh, that level as we go through cost programs. You know, some of those are people. A lot of that is uh, product cost steps that we're taking in our factories. At the same time, you know, we're fundamentally investing in 
the future of the company. And this is where we need to make those long-term capital investments. And as I like to say, three-quarter economic cycles cannot dictate five-year capital cycle investments for strategic leadership. So we have to continue some level of those investments if we're going to get back to leadership. And we're deeply committed you know, to doing that. So adjusting the near-term cost, you know, I call it uh, uh, capacity for uh, capital as well as strategic capital and keeping on path with the strategic capital, even as we make adjustments in the near term. So also our smart capital programs, mm -hmm. uh, John, you know, U.S. chips, EU chips, our SKIP, our semiconductor co-investment programs, ITC, all of these give us leverage on our capital so that we uh, can minimize the pressure on the balance sheet uh, in the near term. So we continue to navigate through being able to do near term adjustments, long term investments. So about those potential adjustments. I know your strategy is interlocking. You need the capital spending to regain manufacturing leadership. You need manufacturing leadership to stand up a foundry business. You need the foundry business to load your fabs enough to have margin on your own chips designs. But does this economic maelstrom that the PC business is going through mean that you can or should delay some of that capital outlay because your, your revenue is getting delayed? Well, we're looking at it very carefully. John, and I say this is never, uh, you know, an A, B. We're always looking, can we delay the capital a little bit and still stay on track? You know, can we lower the requirements? Can we get a little bit more efficient? And clearly, if, you know, we laid out a capital intensity as a percentage of revenue last year, net capital, and we were able to stay inside of those guardrails, we expect that we'll be able to do that again this year, right, as we work hard to get these capital offsets in place that give us more room on the gross capital uh, line, even as we make net capital uh, adjustments. So we believe we're going to be able to navigate through those. We're taking aggressive steps and also finding other ways to present value to our shareholders. Things like the Mobileye IPO that we very mm -hmm. successfully did late last year was other ways that we could uh, improve the balance sheet and present value to our shareholders. Pat, good morning. It's Deirdre. I appreciate you coming on, especially after a tough quarter and tough commentary. You do sound more humbled, more realistic, which I think some investors may see as a relief and maybe part of that bottoming process. I got to press you on the dividend because I know a lot of folks want to know about this. It looks like you did clear the deck in a way with your guidance last night. Why didn't you just say that you might need to cut the dividend instead of changing the language around it? Well, you know, we're uh, always going to look at the capital allocation priorities of the uh, company. You know, we should be a, a dividend payer. And as Dave said on the call last night, you know, we're committed to the uh, dividend and to a very competitive uh, dividend uh, position. But amongst all of the capital requirements, we look at that very carefully uh, over time. And, you know, per the last conversation, strategic capital, capital offsets, near-term adjustments, as well as the continuing uh, healthy dividend mm -hmm. that we present to our, our shareholders. Right. And I guess, what does that healthy dividend mean? Pat, you mentioned earlier that you wanted to be transparent. So are the folks that took that wording competitive dividend, you just said that again, can they, are they wrong to interpret that as a potential cut? Well, you know, we just reaffirmed our dividend payment for this uh, last uh, quarter, and we did that on the earnings call uh, uh, yesterday. Obviously, important topic that we'll uh, continue discussing in the leadership team and uh, with the uh, board of directors. But we do believe this competitive, healthy dividend, you know, something a company of our size and scale should be presenting to our shareholders. Okay, let's move on. Some might argue, though, that your tech um, transition plan is still too ambitious. 
They point to your plan to make five tech transitions, five nodes in four years. That's twice as fast as anything done in history. Um, given Intel's history of mixed execution, what makes you confident that you can achieve that? Well, we're seeing the data every day and our customers are reaffirming it. You know, when I said five nodes in four years, Intel 7 was the first one that's now fully ramped. Uh, Intel 4 will be ramping that this year with our Meteor Lake product. Intel uh, 3, you know, our server products, and as I indicated on the call yesterday, looking very healthy for the 24 uh, server products. And then the process technology that gets us back to leadership, what we call Intel 20A and Intel 18A. You know, we're hitting key milestones, and this uh, quarter we presented right, the design guidelines to our leading edge foundry customers for that. So we're measuring these all the time, presenting that data to our customers and to our own product teams, uh, Deidre. And I'll say, we're on track for five nodes in four years. Yeah, it's never been done before, but we're committed to get back to leadership. We're making the investments to accomplish that. And as I, I like to say, let the silicon speak. And our test silicon that's coming out of Wafer is speaking clearly that we're on track to accomplish that very aggressive strategy that we've laid out. Hey, Pat, um, do government officials have a right to be critical in the wake of some of the subsidies the companies received uh, for some of the expansions? And do you think it affects your ability to qualify for anything that might be in the pipeline down the road? Well, remember, you know, we've laid out this path with the EU CHIPS Act and the U.S. Uh, CHIPS Act. And, you know, I'll just remind you, Carl, that, you know, no government should be acting right on three quarter economic cycles on decade long investment strategies. And that's the basis of the U.S. CHIPS Act. Also, commerce has yet to present the rulemaking for that. So we've seen zero uh, from any of those efforts so far. And as we said, hey, you know, we believe this is the right thing because, you know, today when we have, you know, surplus, right, it isn't that long ago, Carl, where we were screaming for shortages as we had so many industries that weren't able to get enough chips. We have to build this most, you know, critical technology, you know, for the foundation of every aspect of human existence as it goes more digital. So we believe that strategy is still a sound one. And as Commerce presents their rulemaking uh, shortly, we believe, you know, we'll be applying for grants against that for the long-term commitments that we are making, the long-term factory. And uh, we're making good progress in Arizona and Ohio as two big projects. And you know, I regularly uh, update photos to the White House and the administration of the progress that we're making to have that capacity in place. Um, Pat, I want to get back to, to products. Emerald Rapid should be coming end of year should be a relatively uh, easy transition from Sapphire, uh, but at the same time, there's this data center slowdown. So how much visibility do you have into the second half of hyperscaler and enterprise demand? I know some of those buy for the long term, but you know they, they might have some excess capacity of what they've bought already. Yeah, and I think it's a great point, uh, John, because we definitely saw data center slow down as you we went through the year. We're still year-on-year -year growth, but it definitely slowed down. We, ex we do expect that there will be inventory burn in the data center portion of the business in the first half of the year, and that's reflected in our Q1 guide. Now, you know, that slowdown was enterprise, it was China, but it also has now started to affect the cloud vendors. Working closely with them, we do expect some level of recovery in the second half of the year, so we do expect year-on-year -year growth in the data center business, but much more modest for exactly what you described. You know, one of the big factors there, you know, we have larger exposure to the China market. 
you know, and will they come back? We do believe that'll be the case. Uh, and hearing their words at the World Economic Forum and, you know, what they're going to do for economic stimulation, we're a bit optimistic there. But our segments, you know, the enterprise and uh, China, stronger for us. And we do expect that they potentially will be recovering a little bit more quickly than the cloud vendors. Obviously, with Sapphire Rapids, Emerald Rapids coming up, our product line is strengthening. Yeah. And we're getting just tremendously positive response from customers about key capabilities, you know, like uh, AI performance, uh, security capabilities, networking capabilities, where we're not a little bit ahead, we're a lot ahead of the competition in those areas. Key new workloads for the future, and we're clearing a leadership position now with Sapphire and Emerald coming out later this year. Pat, finally, um, a different kind of macro question. Unlike a lot of other tech companies, certainly in software, when I think of the macro impact in the Fed, I think of you guys because of some of the capital projects that you're doing and not only uh, the, the loud, large amount of, of outlay that that involves, but the labor that that involves. As we're seeing perhaps some uh, softening in the labor market and some coming down in inflation, are you seeing any potential benefit on those capital projects uh, that you're spending billions to get complete? You know, and the general answer is not yet. Now, we are expecting that some of those things will start to affect energy prices coming down, labor you know, shortages, uh, potentially benefiting those projects uh, a bit. But generally, we saw a huge increase in some of the cost gaps as we uh, went into the second half of the year for exactly the reason. So we're optimistic that those gaps will start to uh, 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 collapse a bit. But at this point, we're still expecting that some of those effects are, in fact, driving our cost comparisons. And if you go back to the CHIPS Act as an example, you know, the key question was, can we build these factories cost effectively in the U.S. compared to what it costs in Asia? And that's the basis of the CHIPS Act and you know, why commerce has been such a great partner in helping to put that forward. But as inflation has pushed up those costs, the gaps, in fact, increased. So we do need to see some improvements in those areas to make sure these big factory investments that we're making are competitive and allow you know, U.S.-based product to be competing in the global market. Pat, any CEO can come on and talk about a good quarter. We appreciate hearing from you today. Pat Gelsinger, CEO of Intel. Let's get the street's reaction to that conversation. Our next guest pulling no punches in a new note this morning saying Intel is punching itself in the face and calling those Q4 earnings the worst he has seen from the company. Joining us now, Bernstein Managing Director and Senior Analyst Stacy Razgon. Uh, Stacy, anything, anything new you heard in that conversation that changes your opinion about Intel either way? No, not not really. I mean, the numbers kind of spoke for themselves last night. Um, they had a they screamed a pretty um, pretty direct message. I think to everybody on the street. No, there wasn't anything new that I just heard. <laughs> How much risk is there for Intel in the second half if conditions deteriorate? And by deteriorate, I mean even if the PC market doesn't get much worse, but the data center market does. So. To take those, each, it's not implausible to think that the back half should be better than the, it, it better be, but it's not implausible that it could be quite a bit better. PCs right now are undergoing a, ma it's clear CPUs are undergoing a massive inventory flush in, in PCs. Um, they are under shipping by a, 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 a really big amount, which by the way, you got to remember they were over shipping by a massive amount too over the last like four, four to six quarters. So that's correcting now. 
at some point when that flush stops and you go from under shipping demand just to shipping to it, you can get a, a, a lift. And in, usually PCs are stronger just the end market in the in the back half versus the front half. So the idea that that can get better is is not crazy. It it should and it, it it ought to. On the server side, same thing. We've got some inventory um, correction going on. I don't think it's nearly as bad as in PCs, but we've got some of that now. Um, so again, you got some of that correction. I think what Pat is hoping is that the enterprise and China headwinds that they got right now start to ease. Um, the cloud stuff, that I think that is the wild card. We'll have to see um, what, what cloud happens. Usually with cloud digestions, they last a few quarters. And they do have a, a product cycle. Sapphire is ramping now. You should have more Sapphire as a percentage of the mix in the back half than the front half. ASPs on Sapphire should be higher, although they're, they're offsetting cost increases, but the ASPs should be higher. Um, so again, revenue should be up. But I mean, look, in my model, I've got data center up, oh, I don't know, 35%, half over half. I've got PCs up a bunch. And I mean, I've got them doing 54, about $54 billion, something like this year. Um, okay. it, was, it's a, it's a, it was a big revision, let's put it that way. Right. Uh, Stacey, it's Deirdre. Something that you noted, um, Intel made an accounting change this quarter, extending the depreciation lifetime from five to eight years. Um, that should, of course, help with those longer term targets. But what should investors know? Is there a risk here that the company is using this kind of accounting to get there to those longer term targets? Well, so they're, they're doing it because, I mean, they are using the equipment longer. Let, let's be honest. I mean, historically, they were stuck on 14 nanometers for eight years or whatever it was. And they're going to be building a foundry business where you will have more customers that are on nodes for longer. Although I personally, I, I would like them to build the foundry business before they they extend the depreciation, but that's why they're doing it. They actually did it in 2016 as well. They went from four years to five. This time they're going from five years to eight. Um, for the for the listeners, the, the effect that that has is it reduces the amount of fixed cost um, that they're taking every year on those same assets. And it makes them the margins and the earnings look better. The Q1 guide, it was was minus 15 cents. It was actually inflated by about nine cents from this change. The Q1 gross margins were 39% is the guide. They were actually 36 without this change. And for the full year, this change inflates earnings by it's probably 60 cents and, right. and gross by, by um, four to five uh, percentage points. It does not change cash flow. So that's that's it. But it but it will inflate earnings and they have margin targets. They've said they want to get to 51 to 53. Yeah, I mean, they'll have a four or five point tailwind right. to try to get to that target. So that'll help with that. Um, more broadly, Stacey, you were on the call last night, though. I know you didn't get a question. You just heard our interview. As I remarked, very, very different tone from Mr. Gelsinger. Uh, he seems humbled. He seems a lot less optimistic. Is that something that needed to happen? Is that part of the bottoming process here? I mean, I wish it happened, you know, when, when he started the job. I mean, it, it's sort of unusual for somebody to come into a company which is a clear turnaround and, and just sound that bullish right out of the, the gate. I, I mean, it was, in, in hindsight, not a great thing to do. They're obviously like they're cutting big costs, but I mean, headcount's up 20% since he took the job. So they were hiring to a plan that they, they gave a plan at the analyst that they had him doing something like $120 billion in five years. They were clearly hiring to that plan. Um, they certainly didn't get a whole lot out of out of sounding that bullish out of out of the gate. So I think the tone change is is w warranted and, and and helpful. I would also say just to pat this, you're right. This was the second quarter they didn't put me on the call. People are noticing it's not a good luck. Like I wish I that noticed. they would put me back on the call. <laughs> You know, Stacey, a lot of our viewers probably remember a time where companies like AMD uh, existed at the pleasure of Intel. And I wonder, when you look back, when you think that far back, um, 
Was there a moment that was truly consequential in that flip, or was it, has it been more of a, a frog in water kind of dynamic? Um, no, they're, they're probably, so look, you're, you're right, AMD at one point, I think that's a good way to put it, existed at, at Intel's pleasure. They, they, AMD at that point basically got whatever scraps that Intel left on the ground. Um, but it makes AMD's turnaround like pretty remarkable. And the, the controversy in AMD, you know, 2015 or so was, are they going to go bankrupt or not? So and it was a $2 stock and it, and then we can argue about it now, but I mean, it's clearly it's not a $2 stock anymore. It's like a real business with real products and they have leadership. I think the issue, the real issue that Intel has had obviously is, is the process technology delays. That was, that was a biggie um, over time. I mean, that's sort of what gave AMD you know, the, the, the push that they need. And maybe you could argue AMD got lucky, but they capitalized on that delay and AMD's roadmap has been has been rock solid. Um, the near, the, the current issues that Intel is having right now, they are the consequences of those longer term strategic issues and delays and everything. And then like also the, the near term, I mean, there's been execution issues just on planning to the demand environment. They clearly just massively overestimated like where things were going. So that's, I think on the current management team, the strategic issues that they're, and, and the process issues, I mean, that's what Pat's trying to fix. I guess that's what he was sort of brought in to do. And if if you take him at his word, they they claim to have fixed the process stuff. We'll, we'll know in a few years, like if they can execute on that process roadmap or, or or not. But I think even if they can, they're never going to be back in the position that they were in. I mean, those those days are gone because even if they can get back to parity, like is parity enough? I, I mean, like AMD is a real company now, and there are other other competitors out there and ARM is building, uh, companies are building CPUs on ARM architecture and there's lots of other things that are coming on. It's never gonna be the kind of market that it was, you know, five, six, seven years ago for Intel. Well, people also used to say that about uh, Microsoft and Windows. And while it's true, um, they managed to build something else. You never know with these things in tech. Stacy Razgan, yes, always good to talk to you. You bet. Still to come this morning, a daily volume of options on Tesla nearly doubled year on year. They now account for 7% of option activity. We're going to take a look at what way those bets are leaning. And we'll get a check on intraday action here. Uh, hugging the flat line after a pretty decent week. S&P with almost a 100-point gain on the week. Uh, and, of course, compared to yesterday's nearly 11% gain. Be right back. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Seema Modi. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. The Justice Department says it has broken up an Iranian attempt to assassinate an American journalist. Attorney General Merrick Garland has announced charges against three members of an Eastern European crime group who are allegedly hired to silence a critic of the Iranian regime. FBI Director Ray says this case is the latest in a string of attempted threats from Iran. Scary. Shares of Goodyear tire down 6%. The company warning fourth quarter results will be shy of estimates due largely to weak demand in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. Goodyear also says it will lay off 500 employees or about 5% of its workforce as part of cost reduction efforts. And CVS and Walmart are cutting pharmacy hours at many of their stores due to staffing shortages. Starting in March, Walmart says its pharmacies will close two hours earlier on weekdays. And CVS says it will trim pharmacy opening times at about two-thirds of its stores. Carl, I'll send it back to you. All right, Seema, thank you very much, Seema Modi. Let's watch Tesla today. Shares are extending the rally from yesterday, now up more than 20% for the week. Stock has seen a surge in options trading as well, according to data from SIBO Global Markets, with roughly 3 million contracts traded each day on average. That compares to 1.5 million a year ago, obviously more than any other stock. Here to discuss, KKM Financial CEO Jeff Kilberg joins us. The, the Journal writes about this this morning. Uh, Jeff, they sort of frame it as sort of swinging for the fence 
fences in either direction. Uh, but I don't know. Others would argue, given some of the streets targets, maybe there's that much optionality in the name itself. What do you think? Well, Carl, I think more and more investors become more sophisticated in utilizing options as a tool in their toolbox. So what's fascinating to me to see this intersection. We've never seen a motion politics and true technical breakdown in the stock. And look at Tesla last year, the way it came down over 80%. But January 6th, that was a capitulation day. And all the relative strength index, all the readings you saw, it was oversold. But I was selling puts at 140, at 130, and it didn't feel good, right? And Carl, at the end of the day, I felt like a hood ornament, but I was being paid handsomely. I got executed, so I got put to the stock. So I've been an owner of the stock roughly around 130. I just covered about half my position here at 165. Pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. But it seems mm -hmm. like the emotion, the political undercurrent that got pushed into Tesla, Elon Musk, the wake of Twitter, that really oversold the stock. And I think it has the ability technically to bounce back up to 220, kind of where it fell from last fall. Yeah, now you're just getting to some of the some of the base targets on the sell side. Does the volume surprise you, or does it kind of fit with the fact that he's one of the world's richest men, 100 million Twitter followers? We talk about him every day. You know, all the family offices and hedge funds I talk to, they get attracted to volatility. They get attracted to trades like this. So, yes, we've seen a dramatic spike in option volume, but actually look at the underlying shares. The typical average volume on Tesla is about 131 million shares a day. That's nearly double right now. So I think you see the attraction. People are trying to figure out where this market is going. But at the end of the day, the volatility of vol inherently in Tesla, it's sensational. You don't see a stock opportunity like this too often. And that's what we've been seeing a lot of investors try to capitalize. Right, wrong, or indifferent, you're gonna see continued volatility in this name. And that is just opportunity, Carl. Jeff, uh, I know you're also bullish on emerging markets. Want to pick your brain here. The EEM moving higher to start the year after challenging 2022. We're seeing near record inflows this week with more than a billion dollars flowing into emerging equity and debt markets each day of this week. Um, Jeff, some might argue that this enormous rally means that a lot of this is already priced in. And I wonder, too, about the longer term growth story. Is that still intact? You have rising levels of debt, aging demographics, higher interest rates. Yeah, I think you really have to take a step back and let's look at a three-year lens. We've seen emerging markets really be quite sanguine, quite sideways. But here, as you see the dollar index coming down, and if we just rewind a little bit, Deirdre, if you remember the 10-year note, I always go back to where I cut my teeth in the fixed income U.S. Treasury pits in Chicago. But what we saw in the October was that max move higher in 10-year yields. We've done nothing but come straight down since then. Now we're tethered to three and a half percent. That's allowing emerging markets to heal, to move higher. That in conjunction with the Fed looking to pause as we got nice expected PCE data today, I think that puts this in a position to be poised to move higher. But remember, EEM, that ETF we like to utilize, mm -hmm. Deirdre, to get that exposure, nearly 20% of that is China exposure. So as China right. is finally coming back online, that's where there's some enthusiasm, that's where there's some momentum. And I'm also an owner of PGJ, that's the Invesco Golden Dragon Index, that also gives you exposure to China. So I think you have to have a one-two punch here, owning EEM as well as PGJ. Jeff, what about some of those other factors I mentioned, though, that aren't really dependent on interest rates like aging demographics, rising rates, rising levels of debt, and fiscal strains that are emerging throughout the emerging markets? I like to kind of look through the lens that that's been priced in. I think we've become a little bit desensitized. 
yes, we are obviously focused on all those factors you just mentioned, but I think if you look at that three-year perspective, we've grappled, we've fought, we've been on the mat with all those issues. Now it seems like if we do really see this global reopening specific to China, I think this puts a lot of wind in the sails on emerging markets, but you're absolutely right. It has been a very tough trade for the last couple of years. Jeff, great to get your insights. We'll talk to you again soon. Jeff Kelberg. Take care. Coming up on Tech Check, Salesforce appoints three new directors to the board as they prepare for a possible proxy fight with activist Elliot. That story is next. Might be time to cash in some of those coupons. Bed Bath & Beyond rebounding a little bit after closing down 22%. The retailer did disclose that it can't settle its debts with creditors, including J.P. Morgan and 6th Street, and is considering filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. In that filing with the SEC, Bed Bath says it's trying to cut costs by lowering CapEx, closing some stores, renegotiating some leases, but that, quote, these measures may not be successful. Certainly faces an uphill battle. Shares are trading down about 80%. Over 12 months today, D. And as Kramer said this morning, uh, the share donation continues for firms like, for example, a Target or a TJX. Right. Let's also get a check on Salesforce. The stock, let's take a look. Um, it is up by six tenths of 1%, maybe flat, we'll call it. The company confirming plans to shake up its board of directors, adding three new members as it gears up for a potential proxy fight with Elliott Management. The new board members include former Carnival Cruise CEO Arnold Donald, MasterCard CFO Sachin Mira, and Value Act Capital CEO Mazen Morfit. Elliott is, of course, not the only firm looking for change at Salesforce. The company is being targeted by a few other activist investors, including Starboard and Inclusive Capital Partners. Mark Benioff. Has reason to be optimistic, though perhaps the stock has soared this year as, as a result of investor interest up 25%, rebounding from a rough 2022 when it fell more than 40%. Sure, guys, maybe the market is uh, optimistic that maybe it can change, but how much are they optimistic that it's Elliott and Starboard and the activist investors that are going to push, of course, the board members uh, nominated our Benioff selections? Yeah, but you know what catches my eye here? Carl is, uh, is Value Act on the board because Value Act was an activist that got into Microsoft and Adobe a little bit more than a decade ago, uh, kind of before their big cloud transitions. Those two stocks have been really uh, doing well since then. Is this kind of like David fighting with the Philistines? For my Bible nerds out there, I mean, it's kind of like you put you put an activist on the board, but it's kind of like the friendly guy. I don't know. Like, is this a way of saying yeah, we're one. paying attention to this stuff? Well, it certainly fits with what Kramer said this morning, and that is that the dialogue is going to be a lot more constructive than some other activist battles Battles we see at other uh, companies like Disney. The other is that if you're looking for, if the players are looking for technical uh, expertise on the board, D, uh, that, that certainly you could get that from someone who ran, say, William Sonoma and added a lot of tech into the firm. Yeah, no doubt. I guess the question, though, John, is, is Elliot going to accept that? Are they okay that they went with the other activists? We'll see. No, they, come on. They want their own people on the board, right? Yeah, um, I think so. <laughs> well, up next, earnings season continues in full swing next week. We're going to get results from Meta, Alphabet, Amazon, and we've got the trades ahead of those results next. The story this week was, of course, Microsoft and Intel, at least when you're looking at big tech. Next week, though, we will get earnings from some other big names in the space, including Meta, Alphabet, Amazon, Apple. It's going to be a busy one. So how do you position yourself ahead of those results? Our next guest named Meta his top idea for 2023 at the start of the year, and that is paying off so far with the stock up nearly 25 percent. Joining us now with his expectations, RBC Capital Markets' Brad Erickson. Brad, 
Good morning to you and happy Friday. Um, this morning, quarter, likewise. this quarter was supposed to be a clearing out event, and you know Microsoft wasn't all that good if you narrow in on the Azure results. But market is taking it in stride. The Nasdaq looks to have another you know winning week. How do you take all of this? Could markets be in for a surprise next week, or do you think that they've sort of the expectations are actually in line? Yeah, so we actually just had a, a note out yesterday on this. We did our kind of most recent checks with ad agencies that can be sort of instructive for that forward view. And yeah, I think we came out with a view that, you know, Q4 actually ended up okay, kind of kind of uh, maybe just a touch better than feared. In January, similar trends. I know you're getting mixed data points. I think uh, American Express was out this morning, maybe sounding a little bit of the opposite. Um, others have sounded okay. We kind of think January is tracking pretty in line, maybe even a little bit better for the advertising guys. And so, yeah, I think we're 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 a bit more on the optimistic side here heading into next week. Brad, let me float an idea to you. Um, there's advertising, which everyone assumed would be falling off a cliff. And what you're saying is maybe that's yeah. not happening. I was talking to a tech CEO earlier this week who said he's actually not cutting his advertising budget. What he is cutting is cloud spending, enterprise software spending, wherever yeah. he can to a much greater degree. Do you think it's possible that the market is looking at the wrong thing here and it could surprise on the downside like Azure did? And could that be in store for the likes of Amazon and Google? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think I do think that's entirely possible. You're right. Ad spend kind of got cut middle of last year. People got really skittish on the macro, as you recall, kind of May, June, July. And so once you cut, right, and that's maybe why we're seeing a little bit better than feared out of that part of it. But you're right. Cloud had held up, on the other hand, quite strong through Q3. Amazon on their last call, they used this, this word of optimization, right? They're being more proactive, helping clients maybe not quite spend so much on things they don't immediately need related to cloud services. Um, and, and then Microsoft obviously had a disappointing March quarter guide earlier this week. So the re part of the reason, a big reason, frankly, we, we characterize Google and Amazon as maybe better second half ideas was because we do need to right size cloud expectations here on this upcoming uh, earnings reports meeting right smack dab in the middle of the week. And I wonder if there's a chance that the way investors react to the same kinds of earnings results we've been getting might change based on that. And sorry, I missed the first part. Did you say Snap or Meta? I think you said Meta. I said we've got a Fed meeting right smack dab oh, in meeting. the middle sorry. of uh, the week. And does that affect investor sentiment and reaction to the same kind of earnings? Right. Uh, Unfortunately, from my seat and investors, yes. Um, I, I, you know, I'm no expert on the Fed. Um, I, I have to follow the fundamentals of these companies. But yes, at, at times, that's that becomes a, a much greater force in the market than than the fundamental performance these companies tend to put out. Hey, Brad, I know you probably don't cover uh, D.C. as a policy expert, but this bubbling idea that TikTok could face much more than just uh, guardrails has been used as, uh, as a, a net bullish cases for Meta in the back half of the year, let's say. It looks like we might actually get some, some things on paper. Are you taking that seriously? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think there's, there's clear indications that people are reserved. Certainly a lot of these public institutions, higher education um, uh, you know, municipal governments, state governments are, are, are banning these things from their networks. And, and then obviously the policy uh, initiatives you mentioned. What's interesting is, is that it really contrasts what we're hearing out of the advertising channel. People don't care. 
um, everyone still, you know, a lot of people are spending a lot of time on TikTok and advertisers, companies, brands, products, they need to be in front of those companies or they, sorry, they need to be in front of that audience. And so they're continuing to spend. We actually ask these folks on our, on our channel checks, like, hey, are you concerned about this? Sure, they are. But at this point, we're not seeing a change from their <laughs> customer base. Could it, could it affect that, obviously, and be a huge benefit for Meta or Snap, for that matter, if it, if it were to change? Absolutely. That's not our base case, I wouldn't say at this point, though. So, Brad, finally, who do you think is best positioned then? Um, of course, Amazon was able to grow their ad business, felt like overnight mm-hmm. by the time they sort of released the numbers um, with that intent-driven advertising. Who, who are you mm-hmm. looking for next week in terms of maybe an upside surprise? Yeah, I think, you know, Meta has been our call, and you mentioned, and the stock has worked. We do, there's a little bit of concern about the, the maybe some crowding going on there. But that said, we think there's some actually really uh, powerful conversion trends, meaning these Facebook's actually in the process of dynamically restoring that signal loss that we all talked about last year. We, we continue to hear evidence in the channel that they are making improvements on that front to the degree that that is playing out. That would lead to outperformance. That's, that's how we're positioned. Brad, great to get your insights. Have a good weekend. Brad Erickson. Yep. Good to see you. After the break, what results from American Express and Visa tell us about the state of the consumer and a possible recession? Don't go away. Welcome back. Earnings and some new economic data giving us some insights into the consumer today. Let's talk about Amex. Uh, Shares are surging despite a miss on the top and the bottom line. They raised the dividend by 15 percent. Management says we are not seeing recessionary signals. Meantime, Visa with the beat across the board on the consumer front. They report U.S. Q1 payment volume up nine year on year. But some of the data we got this morning may be telling a slightly different story for the short term, at least. Consumer spend for December did fall 0.2 percent, coupled with some underlying inflation slowing to its slowest pace since October of 21. And that all comes as investors await the Fed next week. The Fed chair, Powell, expected to hike by another 25 basis points on Wednesday. Despite those worries, stocks continue to rally here into the new year. The Nasdaq is leading us, as you know, up better than 10 percent on pace for the best month since July of 22. And that doesn't even count Uh, John, for example, one of the best years for European stocks, or at least the best start to a year uh, in decades. Yeah, I think we got to be careful, particularly about these companies' results and the read-through to the broader economy, D, because a lot of these payments processors actually Mm -hmm. get a benefit from inflation because they get paid on the total total dollar amount processed. And even if people are buying the same amount or maybe less, but they're paying more for it, the payments processors get paid. And then also as interest rates are higher, that can be good for some of them, depending on how their business model is structured. But if we have inflation coming down and if we have demand slowing down at the same time, that could slow down for some of these companies more rapidly than in the past. Inflation is a tailwind for them to an extent, right? You have larger total absolute transactions. But in the long run, I think some of the CEOs um, have identified this. It's actually a headwind because it can lead to a pullback in spending. And that, I think, is what the market is a little nervous about going forward as we've seen this huge boom in travel spending, cross-border transactions look good, Carl. But if we head into a recessionary environment, inflation no longer is going to provide that bigger absolute number. People may actually pull back. Yeah, that's that's exactly the bear case over at Morgan Stanley, for example, where sales decline faster than your costs can decline. And uh, and that mix is going to be dangerous, treacherous, they would argue, in the near term. 
Yep. Well, still to come, the highlights from our conversation with Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger. The stock is down more than 50% since he took over in February of 2021, down another 7% today. Come off its lows, though. Tech Check is back in a moment. We're selling into our customers well below their sellout rates in their businesses. So it'll be the biggest single quarter of inventory correction that we see in the marketplace, literally in our history that we can look back as we see records. So major inventory adjustments as they look into a much weaker market than was forecast. And we see that globally, but also particularly with China and the issues that uh, they've been working through with uh, their uh, market and COVID there. So overall, we've uh, given a very transparent look and also working with our customers to bring their inventories down in the first uh, quarter of the year. That was Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger on our air just a few minutes ago, coming on after a really bad earnings quarter for the company, talking through a tough macro environment. Uh, you heard him talking about the inventory correction that they're going through, D, and the macro and the geopolitics all affecting this company as it's trying to spend on the future. Yeah. Um, I think key here is, you know, a few months ago, he told us it was the bottom. I don't think anyone believed him. Are they going to believe him this time? Is this really the bottom? I know, you know, at least one fund manager who called me yesterday and said, OK, this is it. I've been short since Pat took over. Now I'm long. Um, rest of the market. I mean, we've been cutting losses, Carl. We're down 7 percent now. We were down more than 10 percent. This will probably shake out over the weeks and months to come. But as a technology, the newer technology that he's put in place going to make that ambitious plan more achievable, of course, <laughs> the billion dollar question. Yeah, I mean, I just am thinking, guys, uh, John, uh, how the picture might feel differently if we hadn't gotten different types of guidance this week from TSM and ASML and ST Micro. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, this you could argue it really is uh, very much limited to an Intel story. Well, we'll find mm -hmm. out when we hear from the rest of the PC e ecosystem. We certainly heard from Microsoft, and we saw the impact of PCs within that company, and it was frankly just as bad. So it's not just Intel, it's just that Intel is so much of PCs, and that Intel is continuing to spend on trying to reachieve some dominance in the future. If they had just said, eh, we'll settle for mediocrity, then they could be kind of okay here. Maybe they could break into a bunch of pieces, do an HP, but they're trying not to do that. Carl. Really quick, guys, just take a peek at Tesla right now. I mean, I know the tape's moving a little bit overall, but uh, got an 8% gain after yesterday's gain. Wow. That's going to take you back to 174. Uh, what a week it's had, 30% gain in just about uh, five sessions. Next week's going to be busy. ADP, Jolts, Jobs Friday, Fed meeting, and Mega Cap Tech, as you know. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m.